Greetings. This is The Filter with Matt Asher. My guest today is Jeff Deist. Jeff is president of the Mises Institute, where he serves as a writer, public speaker, and advocate for property, markets, and civil society. He previously worked as a longtime advisor and chief of staff to legendary Congressman Ron Paul, for whom he wrote hundreds of articles, speeches, and so forth. In his years with Dr. Paul, he worked with countless grassroots advocates and organizations dedicated to reducing the size and scope of government. Jeff, welcome to The Filter. Thanks, Matt. I'm very excited to have you here and have us try out the uh, in-person interviews thing. Maybe you could start us off by telling us, uh, the listeners, a little bit about your work at Mises, in particular, what you're focused on right now. Well, I suppose like most people, we've been focused on COVID, which came out of left field and caught a lot of us by surprise. And in, from my perspective, on the governmental side, represents a huge overreaction in terms of trade-offs and also a huge failure on the part of social scientists, by which I certainly include economists, to show us the unseen behind COVID. In other words, the trade-offs that we're going to suffer from in terms of economic damage, in terms of psychological damage, mental health, obesity, uh, untreated cancer, uh, you know, all, all kinds of doctor's visits, people gaining weight, people becoming despondent, people losing social connections and social ties. Uh, to me, that's the job of a social scientist is to help us see and understand the unseen that's not necessarily right in front of our eyes in terms of data. And so COVID has been, I think, a bit of a wake-up call and really an indictment of economics somewhat as a profession because economists have not necessarily been on the fore of uh, saying, hey, hold on a minute, you know, the government policies we're enacting here, maybe we ought to be thinking about this. Maybe we ought to be looking at, his at history. Maybe we ought to be, uh, you know, saying epidemiology and virology is not everything. We also, you know, the so-called science, we also need to understand the social science element of what we're doing with these lockdowns. So for the last year or so at Mises, we have been very focused on trying to uh, promote the idea of freedom over lockdowns, the idea that the marketplace, uh, that doctors, that individual physicians, that families, that individual and local communities can deal with COVID uh, in, in ways that make sense for them, that we don't necessarily need a one-size-fits-all policy for a really crowded urban environment, let's say, versus a very sparsely populated state like Wyoming. Um, and, and with so many things, I think, in our society, we have decided, we seem hell-bent on having a really centralized, top-down, one-size-fits-all policy coming out of Washington, D.C. I think that's a huge mistake. Uh, Ludvian Mises, our, our namesake at the Mises Institute, wrote extensively about sovereignty. He wrote about self-determination. He wrote about uh, you know nation versus state and what liberalism would look like. And, and one of the big elements for him of a truly liberal society, you hear that word thrown around a bit, but in the Misesian sense, a, a liberal society is one where people have some sort of say over the rules under which they're supposed to live uh, when it comes to the state. And so he was a big proponent of secession and decentralization. Uh, and so now 
we have this situation in the United States where we're already politically at odds uh, over Trump, over red states versus blue states, over the culture wars. And now we have a new element to this, COVID, which brings up lockdowns versus open. It brings up masks versus no masks. It brings up vaccines versus no vaccine, passports versus no passports. So um, it's almost uncanny the way our government and what I would consider our, our state media complex managed to take everything that happens in society and turn it into a divisive wedge issue, when in fact, economics is all about social cooperation and people dealing with one another peacefully. So um, it's, been a, it's been an instructive year. I think a lot of people saw um, a, a side of U.S. society and, of course, Canadian society and, and European society and places all around the world that they're not so happy with. For sure, I think a, a wake-up call in a number of ways, and you you got into the ways in which we're now basically two societies already. I want to talk more about that, but before I want to get back to that idea of the focus and that idea that at the beginning of this, it was almost as if the only thing one could focus on was COVID. That was the most striking thing to me about mm -hmm. the early days of the pandemic and of the media about the pandemic was that there was no other topic. There was no other thing one could think about, one could consider. It was a, an astounding narrowing. It was almost as if all of society had been put into a fight or flight mode, some kind of really heavy, heavily cortisol injected and adrenalinized moment where it was hard to think past days or weeks or whatever, and everybody seemed to be intently focused on that one thing. I don't, I've never lived through anything like that uh, as far as just the intensity and the narrowing of the focus. Well, yes, and to say that everything was about life and death, first and foremost, was a wild exaggeration. Now, of course, we do have some benefit of hindsight today, to be fair, but now we know that maybe 80% of people were already immune, uh, had natural immunities from previous cold viruses in their bodies. And among that 20%, the people who were greatly at risk were overwhelmingly um, po populated within people over 60, over 70, over 80, and also people who have obesity problems. So given that, you know, the idea that this was a life or death moment for the United States, we had to shut everything down, that we had to focus solely on supposedly humanitarian or health concerns and forget the rest because of the gravity of the situation, I think was untrue then. It's certainly untrue now. But you can understand what's happening here, which is that we have, uh, I think, fallen into the trap of looking at, you know, well, that's mere economics. You know, forget, forget the economy. The economy doesn't matter if we're all dead or if we're all sick. We have to be worried about people's health first and foremost. So what this implies is that you can somehow separate the two, right? That, you know, there, there's no universe where a poorer society is a healthier society. We know this beyond any shadow of the doubt, that more prosperous societies have better health outcomes in terms of longevity, in terms of disease, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, uh, deaths at birth. In, in terms of quality of life. I mean, this is just, you know, there's no question about this. As societies get poorer, uh, the, their healthcare generally deteriorates as well. So first and foremost, you know, if you want to create a healthier society, locking down the economy strikes me as, as a bad idea and an over, you know, exaggeration to put it mildly. But I think this is really 
part of the left's overall project, which is to treat economics as uh, a phony or made-up science, to dismiss economics and to say, well, you know, there aren't any real laws of economics. Economies can basically be commanded by legislative fiat. We can just sort of create the outcomes we want. We can do that through monetary policy, through fiscal policy, through regulatory policy. And I think this is a, a gigantic error. I think this is a form of hubris, uh, free lunchism, uh, which really defies almost belief. And the idea that there's not economic laws, that we can, for example, raise wages forever, um, that we can give people UBI to sit at home and that that incentive won't matter. They'll still want to come back to work just as strongly. You know, all these things uh, which which we might consider economic theorems or economic laws, uh, a lot of people on the left just, they just don't buy it. I mean, I think we need to be accurate about this. Now, there's certainly some bad economics on the right. There's some terrible economics on the right. But th this idea that economics isn't real, that it's just this sort of made up uh, profession that's mostly designed to provide intellectual cover, a sort of pseudo uh, discipline to to excuse property and rich fat cats, you know, like the guy in the Monopoly game or something like that. Um, that's that's not true. But the perception uh, that that perception, I think, represents a huge advancement of left ideology. You know, as we're now in the 21st century, we tend to think, oh my gosh, there's been, you know, what, I, what some people disparagingly call a neoliberal triumph. That now pretty much everybody, unless you're maybe Bernie or AOC, but even, you know, even Bono from U2 says, well, markets work and we, we ought to have markets in Africa because that'll actually do better in terms of helping the African people come up out of poverty, increase their standard of living than charity, right? So even like a Bono, We'll, we'll say that. And maybe a Hillary Clinton would say that, right? Maybe a, um, a John Podesta would say that. So we think, well, okay, so neoliberalism has now triumphed. And that, that represents uh, some kind of social democracy with a strong uh, social safety net and a, a lot of anti-racism focus, a lot of LGBT focus, a lot of feminism focus, but at least a grudging acceptance of markets. And their ability to create prosperity, you know, maybe their excesses need to be regulated, but for the most part, uh, you know, capitalism has has won the day, and now the the Soviet Union is gone. And and look at Singapore and Dubai and and these kinds of places like that. Well, fast forward to the twenty first century, and we find that that's not that's very much in question. You know, go you know, socialism is a mainstream. Uh, 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 economic form of thinking on the left today, you know, things that were radical even five or 10 years ago with Bernie, with AOC. Um, look at Jacobin Magazine. Look, look at the New Republic. Go read Harper's. Um, go read Slater Salon. Uh, socialism has not gone away. And I, I think the, the great reset talk that has surrounded COVID has given the left an opportunity to really push that narrative. I think certainly what hasn't gone away is big government. Uh, conservatives threw in the towel on that maybe 20 to 30 years ago. I remember there was a George Will column uh, during the Bush era, I think the second Bush era, where he's tried to reframe big government as strong government. And that mm -hmm. was essentially throwing in the towel on that. I see a thread running through both the, the left and the right, though maybe more so on the left economically that is a feeling that trade-offs don't exist or don't matter. Uh, 
Uh, and, and that goes through with COVID especially. The idea of this extraordinary state of an emergency was an exceptional cover to be in a place where you didn't have to consider trade-offs. If everything is an emergency, if there's a speeding car coming at you, then you do anything whatsoever to get out of the way, and you don't worry if it costs you everything you have to get out of the way. There is no trade-off because, um, you know, as as uh, Cuomo famously said, the virus is death. It's death, right? If that's what you're facing, then there are no trade-offs. And I think that kind of thinking is, was certainly at a kind of high point throughout the COVID hysteria, but it was also, I think it's also somewhat endemic of our time is that there is no sense that, say, spending limits matter. There's no trade-off in the amount of money we right. spend. Uh, there's no trade-off in the number of rules or complexity of government or whatnot. Maybe it's pushed back, maybe it's pushed forward a little bit, but when when those things are implemented, there's very rarely discussion of what are the you know what are the downsides of this. You mentioned the you know the minimum wage things like that. I think um, that uh, you know raise it as high as you want. It does not matter. There's no trade-off there, and there's no need for discussion of it. I think that we have a lot of people who are basically living in a reality in which whatever their goal is, there's no reason to consider the downsides of trying to obtain that. And partly that may be kind of a rationalization or whatever. And partly, I don't think that we've been conditioned to think that there are those trade-offs. In part, the universe hasn't handed them to us that harshly until COVID, in, in which case the lockdowns were, you know, had huge, clear trade-offs, but those were somewhat buried in stimulus and in mm -hmm. shock and all that. Uh, I, do you see that kind of general feeling that we're not, no, no longer live in a world where people have to worry about trade-offs? I think so. And I think the rise of MMT, modern monetary theory, as a phenomenon, which is gaining traction in left progressive circles is really a symptom of that. This idea that debt and deficits don't matter, at least they don't matter much unless and until we're running huge hyperinflation. Uh, the idea that the United States is sovereign, so we can simply print currency, real or electronic, and that we can finance deficits for as far as the eye can see. I mean, this is not a crackpot theory in the sense that even people like Paul Krugman uh, will give a grudging respect in the New York Times. So this, you know, things that that seemed crazy maybe five or ten years ago have been brought to the fore. And I think the the idea of trade offs that you could have everyone uh, sit at home, that you could create money either on the fiscal side or on the monetary side, um, that you could sort of reward people for for not working, um, you know, that that comes with a price. And I think increasingly. A lot of Americans just don't believe there's a price. They think economics is something that can be commanded. And so, you know, we bring up minimum wage, but you could also bring up the, the capital gains tax hike that Joe Biden is proposing to take long-term capital gains from about 20% now to, for people with enough money, you know, up over 40%. So when you double that, there are trade-offs. But I think a lot of folks on the left would say, well, What's the trade-off? Yeah, the rich guy has to pay more, so he's unhappy. He has a trade-off, but the rest of us don't have any trade-off whatsoever. We just benefit because there's government gets more money in its coffers, and then they spend that on us. And so there's no trade-off for me. Well, the only way you could think this is if you have simply given up on the idea 
that a prosperous society results from production, not consumption. And production is the result of profit and capital savings and capital accumulation poured into you know, more productive mechanisms within the economy. And so everyone used to understand this sort of simple fact. But if you don't believe that, if you don't believe that capital accumulation is required and capital investment is required to drive a healthy economy, if you simply reject that almost as a political matter, but also I would say as a, as a matter of faith, I mean, that's a faith-based, uh, that's a religious belief, um, then it, it, you, know, you don't see a trade-off in doubling the capital gains tax rate. You know, at some point you have to say, you know, Matt, Jeff, what, what's the answer to, to dealing with people who believe this sort of thing? I mean, is it to give them another economics treatise? Is it to hand them a 900-page copy of Human Action? Um, well, you know, certainly some of them, but not very many. I mean, we're in a situation now where the education system and, and the political system and what I would consider a very complicit media have made people believe things which are crazy and untrue. And and that's where we are. I think we ought to be honest with ourselves. I, I think we are very much in a moment of magical thinking right now. I think that that is ruling our world. We're ruled by a combination of magical thinking and mob rule at the moment, whether that is literally mobs in the streets or a kind of woke mob online uh, keyboard warriors. And that kind of mob action is very rarely influenced by logic or reason. My own feeling uh, aligns fairly closely now with uh, a previous guest I've had on Vin Armani, who talked about who talks about the dim age and the moment that we're in being one where what is going to put things right, uh, if anything puts things right, is not going to be logic and reason. It's going to be a higher form of magic, some sort of more powerful magic. One of the interesting things in the the COVID to me was that I kept expecting more of a doomsday cult moment to happen. So uh, one of my favorite books is La Guerra del Fin del Mundo by uh, Mario Vargas Llosa, The War of the End of the World. And he talks about a group of separatists that arise in Brazil towards the turn of the millennium from the, the 19th century there. And it's a really interesting story about this particular moment when Brazil is transitioning away from monarchy into a republic. There's lots of societal changes. There's also a deep shock in the form of, uh, of, of environmental collapse, local environmental collapse through droughts and things like that. And then there's this preacher wandering around the desert, basically who ends up doing a doomsday cult in the end is, is what it turns out to be. Um, and it meets with the end that all of those uh, turn out to end. But a fascinating book, highly recommended. At any rate, it was very much on my mind in the early days of the pandemic. I kept waiting for someone to come along, some charismatic preacher, and see COVID as the end of times and drive forward a religious group of separatists who saw this as a signal, you know, one of the horsemen of the apocalypse or whatever. And then it very slowly dawned on me over time that what had happened was not a, you know, a single or multiple little split off cults or sects, but that mainstream society had turned into 
COVIDians, in essence, that we were all adopting, all meaning most, not, not, not myself so much but and some others, but to a large degree, a, a large number of people in society had created a new religion out of this. There was an orthodoxy of, uh, you know, of medical doctor saints and a clergy, set, cl a clergy, right? A clerisy and a set of new rules for living that your, your face was impure and had to be covered at all times, uh, because you were spewing vile, you know, infectious evil spirits out into the world. Yes. The, the doomsday cult was what happened to mainstream regular society. Everybody was co-opted into that uh, and and had their own brains kind of washed in the way that, that happens in those situations. And it was just startling to me. And it took a long time to realize that because you always think of these these kinds of extremist movements as being a small fringe that goes off in in the case of that book, you know, is wandering through the desert and comes together as a small tribe and goes off and lives in some, you know, at the Bella Monte in that case, some little hill. But in this case, it, it was all of us. Yeah, though that's that's I think an interesting thought, and you know, there was scripture involved in that, and so you know, by definition, the cult is the movement which cannot be challenged or questioned. And so that certainly represents the pro-lockdown, pro-mask, uh, you know, COVID side of things and the anti-lockdown, anti-mask side of things. I think that's true. But when you say that what we might need to right the ship here is some sort of magic, which maybe we could rephrase as saying it's going to take rhetoric as opposed to dialectic. You know, I can hear Mises rolling over in his grave because he was somebody who really lamented um, the end of Enlightenment rationalism, you know, in the conflagrations of the 20th century, uh, which some of which he lived through. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to admit. I think a lot of people who uh, like to read economics, a lot of people who like to read libertarian theory, a lot of people who like to think about the state and the economy like to think that we can reason our way through things and, uh, and that there are enough I guess, people of goodwill uh, to, to run things. But uh, boy, this COVID year really, really put the test to that. And uh, it, you know, there's, there's a lot going on here in terms of uh, uh, herd psychology, in terms of propaganda and influence. Edward Benet's comes to mind. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot going on, uh, which is beyond just economics and which is beyond just public policy. You know, there's a, there's a, a cultishness to it. There's a magic, and uh, you know how how you overcome that. Uh, I, increasingly, I think is some sort of separation rather than uh, you know some sort of persuasion uh, with you know by by creating our own clergy and our own cult leaders. I, I think that that's uh, I think that's right, and I think that's one of the things that this magic moment opens up is actually a questioning of old magic. So at a moment when, you know, when people are starting to think that nothing matters, nothing has consequences, at least in terms of spending money or all these other things, you also have the reality that things do matter, that jobs were lost, that people are moving from places that are more locked down to less locked down. I am witness to that. I voted with my feet to get out of Ontario 
a few months ago down here in Florida right now, uh, in very large part because of the local political situation here versus up north, where I lived very happily for 13 years and spent money and paid taxes and did all those things. So the the magical thinking that lockdowns downs don't matter and that and that all these other aspects of it um they do end up spilling off some real world consequences and one of those is that people are self-segregating they're doing it both culturally and ideologically and physically i actually think one of one of the most interesting things you reported on maybe it was in october was you went through all of the ways in which there are essentially two Americas and that if you it, that if you filter election results from 2016 I think it was based on particular beliefs or whatever you see that you know that that the United States all swings all one way or swings all the other depending upon you know which fault line of a particular belief people fall on and and sometimes there's magical thinking on both sides of that well, it's terrible because the politicization of everything that yields these consistent voting patterns, not just urban versus rural, um, is, I think, really deadly and damaging for our country. It's predictable. But, you know, if you talk to people and they're honest with you, you'll you'll find out that their politics really is tribal. In other words, it's not so much about uh, policy and it's not even so much about my guy or gal. It's more that, you know, I'm not the other guy or gal. Uh, people don't vote for people who hate their guts <laughs> as a general rule. And I think a lot of people rightfully thought Hillary Clinton held them in contempt. And, you know, there was a progressive, a deterministic arc to history. Hillary Clinton was destined to be president. She was going to be the first female president of the United States. And all of this was almost set in stone. And it turns out there were more deplorables than they thought, and they voted in greater numbers than they imagined in 2016, and you know shocked the uh, progressive world, which had been ready to anoint or coronate Hillary Clinton. And I think there's a lot of resentment and anger and hostility over that still, which takes the form of vengeance, uh, which takes the form of retribution, which I think are both sort of related to this idea of magic. Right, they're not. They don't operate purely in the rational realm. These are these are emotional constructs, emotional impulses that people have, and there was a desire to hurt people. I mean, that's really what what politics is at the end of the day. It's a lesser form of warfare. It's it's a form of of you know a lesser form of violence in the sense that you want to vanquish people. It's a it's a zero sum game, right? You get Hillary Clinton or you get Donald Trump, and either way. There's an enormous percentage of the population, maybe 40% either way, who feels they're living in some sort of occupied territory, right? Um, as silly as that might be in terms of, you know, presidents don't really matter that much and they don't have that much influence over our day-to-day -day life. They have some, certainly. Uh, and so th this division and, and the idea of magic thinking, I think, are, are heavily related. But we have to, I think... You know, rather than trying to conquer the political world, I think we have to to, to look at the cracks. You know, where entrepreneurship and economics uh, flourish, and say, you know, what can we do on our, you know, personally, individually, to make for a world that is more rational, a world that is more based on on voluntary choice, and that's not the political world. 
it just isn't, you know, I, I, um, you know, should I spend all of my time trying to get, you know, a certain person elected president in, uh, 2024, I, you know, that, that seems like kind of a, a mugs game because, um, the, this, this magical thinking, this inability to conceptualize trade-offs, uh, this inability to apply reason to the political process is not something you can just overcome. I mean, this takes decades and maybe centuries, and I'm not sure we have decades or centuries in terms of our, you know, our entitlement problems, our dollar problems. Um, and, and so I think like you, like a lot of people, we're struggling a little bit to pivot and say, you know, what's, what, given the circumstances, what's the job of the Mises Institute? You know, what are we trying to do? How, what, you know, what's, What's, what are we trying to do every day when we wake up, you know, and what are we all trying to do also as individuals in our own lives? I mean, you took affirmative steps to change your own personal situation when, when COVID hit. And, and so, um, you know, I think that that's really the kernel. That's, that's the, uh, you know, that's where everything starts. Yeah. And, and I think that forces have been set in motion, which are going to make some things inevitable here, magical thinking or no, there are, there are realities in these things. There's realities to what happens if you print endless amounts of money. There are realities when the response to the pandemic is essentially to consolidate wealth and power in the hands of the professional managerial class that probably, you know, if you were doing one of those fault line divides, would have voted for Hillary Clinton at a 90% rate or something like that. That particular class of journalists, government workers, uh, higher probably echelon business people, Amazon style Silicon Valley folks, and academia, certainly, the people who didn't lose their job with the imposition of the particular kinds of lockdown policies, they they won, they vanquished, they consolidated power, they got much more wealthy. Uh, the COVID was magical for them as a group. Now, this is not to say that individual people in that group would have wanted a pandemic. This is not the allegation there, but the con- the the measures that were taken, the consequences of those, and this is certainly not an accident, the consequences of those were highly favorable towards the professional managerial class and very unfavorable towards uh, pretty much everybody else. Um, and uh, and those consequences are, are being felt now. They're being felt with, with me moving. Um, they're being felt with also a sense that if... A nation is a shared destiny. We're not a nation anymore, no. are we? No, we certainly aren't. And and I hadn't thought of it the way you just sort of crystallized it, that the managerial class was the big winner here. And when we're talking about this class, this could just mean somebody who makes $40,000 a year, but they work at Vox or something. It doesn't necessarily mean you're Jeff Bezos, right? When we talk about elites in society. And when you say, you know, this magical thinking... That we can we can you know get by without any particular harm or pain economically, especially you know for managerial people that's been somewhat true. I mean, even school teachers basically gotten a paycheck, 
and and all the way up. But but boy, as far as the trade-offs, I think when we were having dinner, you said something along the lines of, you know, lockdowns have been a big fu to working class and, and less affluent folks. And that's so true because they're the ones home without a paycheck, maybe hourly workers, maybe Hispanic immigrants who build houses and do things, you know, where they can't work from home. You know, not everybody's a digerati looking at a screen all day and doing Zoom calls. I mean, a lot of people work with their hands. A lot of people work in hotels and restaurants and tourism down here in the Keys. And a lot of people pull fish out of the water, you know, so that you can have uh, what you have at Publix and, and this sort of thing. So there's a huge class of society that, that has suffered. And, and of course, what we're starting to see now are the unbelievable supply chain disruptions. I mean, you have lumber tripling, which is going to you know, hugely add to the cost of new housing, which is going to artificially increase the cost of existing housing, which we've seen all over the country. I mean, there's an absolute housing mania, which I think is starting to rival anything we saw you know, in that 05 to 07 timeframe when things were getting really crazy and you know, cab drivers and uh, you know, strippers in Las Vegas were flipping five condos, you know, and, and that worked for a while. And it feels like, boy, oh boy, we're entering on something like that again with ultra low interest rates. And so um, COVID hasn't been bad for everyone. It hasn't been bad for everyone. It hasn't been bad for Walmart or Target or Amazon or the Washington Post. And, and, and as you said, I, I don't think, you know, that, that the uh, technocratic people in the society wish harm on people in the form of a virus. I don't think um, this is some sort of bioweapon or something like that, that that anybody really foresaw. I think that this is just a very manageable virus with a, with a really relatively small infection death rate and a really pretty small vulnerable population, which we could have dealt with by simply managing the risk among that vulnerable population. The rest of us could have pretty much gone on uh, with, with life unabated, maybe wash your hands a little more, you know, maybe wear a mask if you're going in to visit grandma at the nursing home, you know, really simple uh, stuff I think could have, would have sufficed. And so, you know, the idea that we shut down the world and we've never had this before. I mean, we've had shutdowns over pandemics in, in localized or regionalized times, but I mean, to shut down the world, people went to work in London during the Blitz I mean, people went to work during every plague, during during Spanish flu, during world wars. I mean, you know, I have to think that 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 this was fueled, at least in part, by an underlying desire to one create the Great Reset, which we've now heard. You know, I'll be snarky. The Davos crowd speaking about pretty openly, well, right? And, I mean, and and Trudeau right. in, I mean, in Canada directly referenced it right. as you know we're we're being uh, offered a Great Reset. Right. So not, so not only the Great Reset, which, uh, you know, obviously frightens me and concerns me, but also I think a, a part of this was just, we'll shut down the world to get Trump. And it worked, in part. They got Trump. So, uh, you know, I don't think that was the only reason. I, you know, COVID is real. COVID has lethal effects for some people. But the reaction to it, I think, would not have been the same were Hillary Clinton president when it came along. I think there's no question about it um, that this would have been treated very differently as a media story. And it would have been, you know, if she had taken the exact same steps as Donald Trump did, at some point, I think he shut off international flights, you know, vaccines, whatever he did. I think she would have been praised to the, you know, to the highest halls as, you know, as a competent leader who's soberly looking at COVID and, you know. So let's let's not forget that get Trump was was part of the impetus behind all of this.
It, it certainly played a, a role and, and maybe a significant role, though uh, a lot of other countries found their own reasons to uh, partake excitedly, maybe even in these kind of lockdown measures. Governments like power, they like having more power and um, to some extent, that might have been driven in the U.S. by a get Trump kind of affiliation in the sense that it was helpful for that as well as other things. Uh, but then in, in other parts of the world, it was just a perhaps a, a, a useful reason for mm -hmm. people in power to have more of it, which they uh, generally always tend to, uh, to, to like. One of the things that you mentioned there about the you know, the, the, the strippers flipping houses, it has me thinking that one of the marks of kind of a magical era is that it's co-optive and that even people who wouldn't necessarily be prone to magical thinking are drawn into it because at an individual right. level, and I think this is something that you talked about at dinner, that the it's it's in your own best interests to be irrational along with the crowd. You, you might as well, right? The, what is the the old saying about markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent, right? In right. situations like that where everybody is thinking magically, your best rational choice may be to go along with that. Your best choice may be to quit that stripping job and go flip houses. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's what society is saying with economic incentives. I think you've done actually some work, if I'm right, on the ways in which economic structures and the economic incentives that we've created have broken the link between underlying value and useful work, say. Yeah, it's it's an incredible story and an untold story uh, in terms of journalism or social science. You know, what, especially from my perspective, monetary policy has done to sort of shift the sands underneath our feet so we don't really know what we're standing on. We don't really know what the foundation consists of. We don't really know the actual proper price or value of anything in society, in my opinion, as a result of what the Fed has done. That's a little bit complicated. There's some layers to that, right? It's not necessarily the easiest thing to explain in sound bites, And it's certainly not something I understand fully. And I would argue that that actual, you know, PhD monetary economists don't understand fully. And what really helped me was reading The Great Deformation by David Stockman, uh, which is, I think, a brilliant book. And so one of the things he points out in that book is that the federal funds rate, and that used to be before they were flush with reserves from quantitative easing after the crash of 07, but it used to be the overnight rate at which banks lent money to each other to cover their uh, capital requirements and their reserve requirements. So now they don't really have to do that. And uh, the uh, Fed funds rate kept going down and down and down. And so it's, it's, uh, it's effectively, at some point, they started paying them interest on those excess reserves they held. And so it was a quarter point. And so at some point, you know, banks said, well, it's just better to keep our reserves parked because, you know, we're actually getting paid interest. And so this idea of banks lending and borrowing to each other became less important. But Stockman's point is that there's sort of the, a price, a cost of money which is certainly linked to uh, the federal funds rate in the United States, which is not set by the Fed, but it's targeted. They use the term targeted because they can't control it one-to-one. -one. Banks have something to do with it. But basically, you take that number, 
which is now effectively negative. I mean, when you think of real terms in inflation, and you say you add a couple points to that, and that's the 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 rate at which uh, prime borrowers, you know, the prime rate borrowers borrow from each other, add a couple more points, and that's where subprime borrowers would be. I mean, this this signal of a really low interest rate just cascades throughout society in so many ways. I mean, it it's just you know we don't know how much value the stripper created by flipping those houses because the, the the numbers are funny, right? And in in a way, let's just say the stripper's a she, I guess there's male strippers, but uh, in a way she was acting rationally given the signals, the magical signals that the Fed was sending out. And at some point that filtered down to her local bank, let's say uh, in Las Vegas. And, and in, in many ways, she was acting perfectly rational, giving the signals and the ability to borrow without a lot of documentation, without a lot of income verification. They used to call them liar loans. If you've seen the big short. Yeah, um, there was also the right. great term ninja loans. Right. No, right. no income, no job, right? Right. <laughs> Just ask. Yeah. Um, and so, so, you know, while the system underneath might be irrational, she was acting rationally. And, and we see this throughout society now. We have, especially since 07, 08, but with COVID in 2020, we have so much new money in credit creation, both on the fiscal side, you know, directly giving people money and giving industries money. Most of the money went to industries. Let's, you know, the CARES Act and all those trillions of dollars. Let's not forget that most of that went to private industry, not to individuals getting their 1200 bucks or whatever they got. Um, and so when you create a lot of new money and credit, both on the monetary and fiscal side, you have it's like squeezing a balloon. Where does it all go? Well, after 07 and 08, a lot of it just sort of stayed parked in bank reserves, and we didn't see a lot of consumer inflation. And, and looking back, you know, that makes more sense to us that it didn't all pour into the general economy. Uh, but at the time, it wasn't so clear what was going to happen with that. And so Austrians have been criticized a lot for saying that that would create hyperinflation, and, and it didn't. But it did create a, a drastic form of inflation in, in certain asset classes, in equities, in housing, in places like Key West, Florida, and in Manhattan, and in San Francisco, and in Toronto, and in Vancouver. You know, a, a lot of money flowed into things other than just consumer goods. Now, there's a supply and demand element to that. Of course, but you know this idea that that inflation didn't happen isn't true, and so when we when we have sort of funny money at the bottom of it, in other words, money that's not provided by the market as Hayek called for, and an interest rate, the cost of money, which is not provided by the market, you know, it, it becomes very hard for us to understand what things cost or what they value or what they were what they're worth, because for example, so much money went into stocks, so. Stock prices went up and up and up and up. But does that mean that the underlying company, let's say it's Amazon or look at the FANG stocks, were they really getting that much better? They weren't necessarily getting more profitable. They weren't necessarily paying dividends. They weren't necessarily entering new markets. Um, they weren't necessarily in radically increasing their top line growth. I mean, in other words, what, what was it that caused their stock to go up? Well, in, 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 to an extent, it was it was funny money at the bottom. And so when that funny money flows throughout the culture, when it goes into venture capital, when it goes into private equity, when it goes into hedge funds, you know, a lot of stuff begins to look good on paper. A lot of businesses, you know, we call this malinvestment in the economics world. And so, you know, we had this discussion earlier, maybe some brilliant young kid in Silicon Valley comes up with a widget or an app and he builds a company. It's just seven or eight guys. It's kind of like a Minecraft story. 
And, you know, five years later, they sell that app to, to uh, you know, some big company or some big private equity firm for $50 million. And you look at this young guy and you say, wow, you know, the company you started is worth $50 million. So you created $50 million worth of value for society, at least as judged by the buyer of your company. Well, maybe, but maybe in a world of rational money and rational interest rates, which I would define as market-driven, maybe he would have only sold it for $20 million, right? You know, it's just, it's very hard to understand um, what anything costs and what anything's worth when we have the basis of money itself being commanded and controlled by what we might call a Politburo of, of monetary central planners. And so half of every transaction is in no way, shape or form free market. You know, you go buy a Honda Accord. Okay, yes, that car's been through a lot of regulatory and safety stuff. Honda's paid taxes. Honda's had to pay a certain a minimum wage. Honda's had to have certain workplace safety. Okay, yes, there's a government overlay to what Honda does to produce a Honda Accord. But, but we can view that as a market good in large part, okay? But what's a Honda Accord, $38,000 or something like that? You know, the, the money you're giving the good folks at Honda in exchange for that is in no way, shape, or form a market phenomena. So what's Honda getting? Well, in my opinion, at least in 2021, they're getting a rapidly depreciating $38,000 and they better do something with it quick, you know? And, and let's, let's imagine that Honda is smart enough to bake in a little bit of a premium for that risk and uncertainty on the currency they're getting. Mm -hmm. um, can't know that, but I assume that. Um, you know, it's, it's a really screwy situation when you think of it that, in that term, that, that half of every transaction, the money you, as, or at least as American, are, are giving for the good or service on the other side, you can examine the quality of that good or service. But what, where is the examination of the quality of the money being exchanged? Pr pretty, pretty amazing if, to think about. It, it's really interesting how much we're playing around with money as if it's almost a toy or a fake now. I see that a lot. There is the story that you told that uh, about the effects of low interest rates and the Fed's manipulations on the market, on the way that people react and the diminution of the of the dollar as a reliable signal of something, of cost as a reliable signal of something. There's also a story that has to do with technology in that we're technology allows things to scale very quickly, very rapidly to go global. It makes a lot of marketplaces global that were not previously global, which creates more winner-take-all dynamics, which creates a much more skewed distribution. You've gone from a world where a local musician, you know, we're at a place where there's a local musician performing. It's completely local. They're there. They may not be getting a lot of money, but they're getting some money to a world where I can pull up on my computer right now any song by anybody that's ever been digitally encoded, uh, which is to say, you know, just about anything of the last 50 years of note. Um, and in that kind of a world, you get a handful of players who are going to do exceptionally well. That's true in the area of music. And then that's true in the area of any kind of a tech company. Software scales exceptionally well. So you get a situation where all of the factors that you described are in play, and then you also have in play a kind of easy money, fast money, a, a, an era in which some people are accumulating 
large sums of money extremely quickly, and everybody sees that. Everybody sees a small group of folks who are able to roll the dice, win, and walk away with an extraordinary amount of money. And you throw that all together, and you get a, a culture, too, I believe, where people start to not treat money as a serious thing. You get phenomenons like the GameStop gambling, essentially, on you know, on, on this, which was an attempt by a group of people to collude and drive up the price of a stock in order to stick it to a particular uh, hedge fund, I think, and also make money for themselves. But they were doing it very much in a spirit that we're gambling with our money, but that's just what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. Everybody is gambling with their money. I have a little bit of money in the bank. I feel like having that in the bank is gambling sure. right now. Sure. Um, I, you know, I've always known that inflation is kind of a slow creeping thing or understood that, but now having money in the bank feels like gambling. Um, you know, I feel like maybe, you know, maybe I should take my 2K out and, you know, go spend it on something tangible or whatever it is, right? Um, or maybe I should be gambling on GameStop or whatever else it is. That's where people are getting getting rich or starting a startup or whatever else it is. Do something that has some lottery ticket-like aspect to it because that's where the excitement is, that's where the fun is, that's where the incentives are pushing people you know, it's very easy to get caught up in that kind of magical thinking about what one should do with one's money or to, or conversely, to start to feel like if you don't do something extreme with it, that you're just going to lose it. You're going to, you're going to lose ground very quickly just by standing in place or being conservative with it. Well, we've seen huge price increases in just the last months at the grocery store, at the gas pump. I mean, these things are going to be visible uh, and and they may affect Joe Biden because, you know, those are the two things, gas and groceries that most people see in their day-to-day life, but there's a million other things. And I, I agree, you know, money has gotten to be something that we don't really understand. It's almost like a, a form of power or electricity. You know, you get so much of it. And I don't know that I have a, a good answer to this concept of tech scaling because in many ways we benefit from tech scaling. It makes things like you mentioned, digital music available to us. You can go listen to just about any song ever. Whereas when I was a kid, you had to go to the record store and find the vinyl and, and you know, have that, that capacity. And uh, so it was very difficult. But you know, for Honda to get an, an yet another Honda Accord in physical form to your local dealer might require many thousands of people many thousands, tens of thousands of materials and a lot of logistics. Whereas, you know, seven or eight guys could necessarily build Minecraft. And then each additional unit of Minecraft sold is just a tiny bit of data somewhere and there's huge scale. And so, you know, young people growing up today say, well, you know, gee, I should be, you know, I should be doing this for work, not, not, you know, this old fuddy-duddy tangible world. Um, And that, you know, that, I, I guess maybe I'm, showing a little bit of my stripes as someone that that concerns a little bit. I'm not sort of a techie libertarian in the sense that I just absolutely cheer this stuff unequivocally. I think that there's a social and a moral component to it. Um, You know, I don't think wealth inequality is quite uh, the problem the left makes it out to be. Because when you mention how rich people can get so fast, that's true. But what does that really mean? I mean, there's, there's sort of a diminishing marginal utility to those extra 
billions or hundreds of millions or, or whatever it might be. And well, that's what us plebes tell yes, ourselves anyway. To, <laughs> said, uh, to feel better. But I, I do think it's true that today your your day-to-day life is far more like Bill Gates than unlike. You know, two, three hundred years ago, you know, your your day-to-day life would be very, very, very unlike one of the richest people on earth in terms of just the physical and material reality surrounding you. You've probably been working outside with your hands, uh, uh, you know, a, a rough life, a short, short lifespan, that sort of thing. Whereas, you know, Bill Gates gets up in the morning in a house. Okay, maybe it's bigger and nicer than yours. Maybe he gets in a car. Maybe he's got a fancy car, whatever. He drives somewhere. Maybe he stays at home. He kind of looks at a computer screen all day. A lot of us look at a computer screen all day. You know, he's got some food in the fridge. Maybe it's a fancier fridge with fancier food. But, you know, I mean, uh, calories are really historically pretty cheap. You know, well, they're going up lately. But up until a year or two or so ago, I mean, calories have never been cheaper uh, relative to wages, I think, in human history. Um, And so, you know, I don't, you know, it's not a robber baron situation. It's It's just a situation where I think the scaling you mentioned has dovetailed with what I consider just absolutely crazy monetary policy, um, which is a, an enormous driver of wealth and income inequality, which the left never talks about, by the way. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it all comes together in ways that can be unpredictable. You know, it's, it's hard to say. I think that's, it's, it's above my pay grade. But the, the way that this filters throughout society, including culturally, you know, Guido Holzman, the uh, German economist has written about the cultural consequences of fiat money. They make us, you know, have higher time preference. You know, we want stuff now. If, if you're getting less than 1% on, on some sort of simple safe savings account, you know, a, a CD or a money market mutual fund or something, you know, you say when everybody feels like they have to chase something. Well, that includes like little old ladies who used to just say, well, I have enough money that I, I think to last me you know, the rest of my life, I'm in my 80s, maybe I'll live another five or 10 years. And I just, I don't want to risk it in the stock market. You know, I want to just have a really safe and maybe get five or six or 7% interest. Well, not only can you not do that today in simple investments, you're probably losing two, three, 4% in real terms to inflation. So that means little old ladies go out and get, you know, investment advisors and they, oh my gosh, go buy Tesla, (laughs) you know, go buy Bitcoin. Whatever it might be, and that's that to me is a real tragedy. Um, it's a tragedy for savers. It's a tragedy for sort of blue collar working class people who are maybe less sophisticated in the investment world. They're, you know, that's no knock on them. When someone works hard physically, uh, cleaning hotel rooms or something, fourteen hours a day, you know, they may not just want to come home and spend. Their, they may have kids. They may not spend their evening, you know, in their E Trade account reading uh, company pros- prospectives or something. I mean, you know, so. This idea that we all have to be financially savvy and keep up or we're, or we're going to lose money, that we can't have a simple, safe uh, savings vehicle. The, the, you know, my Bitcoin friends would say, Jeff, it's Bitcoin. You dummy, you know, tout Bitcoin, number go up. Uh, but I mean, th- this idea that we financialized everything so much, I think is really harmful for society. And, and you know, how can we ever measure or quantify it? You know, how, how many people, um, you know, bought... A, a BMW instead of a Taurus, you know, just little things like that because of interest rates, because credit was so widely available. You know, how many people went on European vacations instead of just driving to Disney? You know, I mean, it's it's just, it's hard to say all the different ways in which 
um, you know, uh, fiat money affects us culturally. Yeah, the I think that culture is the big thing that people are not appreciating as much. And even I don't think I'd spent as much time thinking about culture as I should have until until the COVID era, really. And it has me now very much rethinking the importance I put on economics versus uh, culture. And that as we're splitting up and voting with our feet and becoming two different or multiple different nations, the most important question may not be, you know, necessarily even um, policy per se, although those are still important at the local level, but maybe they come from culture more than are driven by it. And that is the, the important thing. In fact, as I think about the forces that we talked about, both the government forces in terms of money, but even more so just the natural force of technology in terms of driving extremism, and and by that I don't mean ideological extremism, I mean extremism of outcomes um, and extremism of ways of life and concentrations of wealth that in the context of a government that's willing to be bribed, which is to say every government in history concentrations of power that necessarily follow from those concentrations of wealth, that maybe what we need to be talking more about um, is the particular local cultures that we want to live in as we, you know, as we self-segregate here, uh, and also whether we might want to look at the value in systems like the Amish have, where your culture has built in self-limitations to your aspirations, which is in some ways kind of a hard thing for me to say and and sort of would have been stunning words to my ears however many years ago, but that our way forward collectively may be in, in cultures that decide that that maybe we don't want every technology all the time completely used, that maybe we want to be more deliberate about that. Maybe we want cultures in which we decide, you know, we should think about this whole Facebook thing and what it's doing to us. We, I, I like probably almost every American, I feel addicted to some extent to my phone. Um, more recently, since I moved down here, I'm trying to, you know, call that or whatever. It's hard as an individual person to do that. If I could choose to live in a culture that had decided that we're not doing Facebook, we're not doing Twitter, we're not doing uh, any of those things, I think that'd be an okay trade-off. You know, I can deal with getting my news once a day on paper. I can live in that kind of a world. But it's very hard for me to live in that kind of world alone. Mm-hmm. It has to be part of the culture around me. And it, there has to be consensus about that. There has to be a community around that. I think that that's true uh, about technology and being more deliberate about how we choose it. It's true about other things. Even among that, I see a movement among people who have been part of the tech industry, which certainly includes myself, to be very careful about what we let into our own lives in terms of technology and also in terms of how we see our own kids using technology. And I imagine as a father, you have your own thoughts about, you know, whether it's great that your child has a cell phone at an early age, Mm -hmm. 
you know, you see that. And as someone who's familiar with that world, maybe even more so as someone who's familiar with the world of tech, you think maybe this isn't a good idea. Maybe we should be striving for cultures that aren't endlessly embracing of this. Yeah, it's a tough question because, you know, culture is far broader than economics. Earlier, we mentioned mere economics. I think economics is very important. I think it influences culture. It has an important role to play in culture, but culture is broader and wider and we need to think about it. You know, Hoppe has spoken a lot about the way... This uh, is uh, Hans Hermann right, Hoppe. About the way government has degraded culture in many ways. So, you know, when we say that we're so addicted to Twitter and Facebook and uh, to our smartphones and that we, you know, sometimes wish maybe it weren't this way, well, we're not just swimming in a pond uh, of, of free market ingenuity. I mean, you know, there's, there's a government overlay to the, the media around us and what we consume. These companies just didn't arise from the ether. So I think we have to understand that first and foremost. But it certainly caused me to have to challenge some of my own uh, anarchist orthodoxies, right? The idea that private corporations can do whatever they want. Um, you know, my view today versus, let's say, 10 years ago, I think has changed. I think I increasingly view those corporations as part of a, sort of a government technology nexus or complex. And I do worry about my kids. I, I think social media for the most part is a disaster because it, it trains us to think in these kind of quick flickering sound bites to, you know, let our hindbrain pull up our emotive response to that. And in many ways, rather than giving us lots of new information to consider and to become more thoughtful people, it's probably making us just dig in more. To, to our existing worldview, because now we can sort of curate exactly what we see and don't see, and we can live in an echo chamber and hear things all day long that comport with our particular perspective. And then we can sit there and, and sort of attack or lament or laugh at the other perspective. So, you know, far from creating understanding among people, I think social media is serving to divide us further. I, you know, I, I think a lot of people would agree to that. So then the follow-up question would be, well, you know, come on, Jeff, you're this free market fundamentalist, and that's what these companies have done. There's profit in that. There's money to be made in that. So where's your, where's your free market critique of what they're doing? And, and I think the answer to that is that we have to understand value more broadly. I mean, there's, there's culture, there's our kids' well-being, there's all kinds of things we value or at least ought to value uh, more than just pecuniary or economic benefits to things, right? I mean, if you uh, said to one of us, sit, you know, the two of us sitting here, that you know, rather than do what you do currently for a living, you could go up to Miami and sell crack cocaine, and you know, quadruple your income. Okay, let's let's say that happened to be true. I, I wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that. I I don't want to sell crack cocaine. I don't want to uh, co you know have people ruin their lives. Uh, using drugs. And a lot of people are going to do that, but they don't need me to help them with it, right? So I think we all understand implicitly that money isn't everything, that there are trade-offs. But those trade-offs are not just in the economic, purely economic realm. You know, they're in the, in the ethical and moral and even spiritual realm for a lot of people. So this is, you know, this has been an awakening. And, and it's been, I think, uh, seeing the tech world become what it's become, you know, the, the meme, you know, my private company, ha, ha, ha. Um, 
you know, that's that's been a real eye opener. And I think it it forces us to sort of go back to fundamentals, to go back to Menger, for example, Carl Menger, sort of the, the progenitor of the of the Austrian school in the late 1800s, and say, you know, what's value and how do we define it? And it's it's not always just dollars and cents. For sure, it isn't. And economics has recognized this for a long time. The concept of utility is not necessarily the same as money. Uh, it allows for us to put our value in a wide range of things. Uh, whether those particular models that are used are valuable or not, I think that there has mostly been the recognition that it isn't all about money um, and that all money is not as simple as 10 is half as much as 20 and twice as much as five from the perspective of value to an individual person. And the same with any amount of object, that it's more complicated than that, certainly. And culturally, we get to decide where we place those values um, and, you know, and, and what we want to do about that. What do we want to value? Uh, and certainly in terms of what you were saying about, you know, the, the tech companies and, oh, it's a private company. I think that, I think it should be clear at this stage, we're well beyond that. I don't, we're in waters that are so sufficiently muddied and companies that are so sufficiently bullied or captured by governments or vice versa, governments that are bullied or captured by, uh, by private corporations that, I think that we're at a place where a certain amount of free market arguments break down, not because they were unsound in theory or would be unsound in a particular kind of world, but because they just make no sense in a world in which, oh, I'm was about to sound like a trailer there, in a world in which <laughs> private enterprise is the right arm of the government and vice versa. You know, in that kind of a world, then talking about how, you know, how you're doing value creation or free, you know, it's it's not censorship because it's private company. None of those things make sense. Um, or that your economic theories of this being value creation because it's driven forward by the demand of consumers in a free market that doesn't have anything to do with it at this stage. Or I should not say that. It has something to do with it, but it has increasingly the dominant factor there is the the, the strong arm of either a corporation working with the government or vice versa. And so when, when those models have broken down because we're in a world, that kind of a world, then what's your next move? My, my opinion is then you have to go back to culture. Well, for one thing, you have to try to disentangle. Maybe you have to disentangle forcefully in the form of, um, I, I don't have any faith in the government's actions through breaking up or those kind of things. I don't think that that's necessarily viable. But then it, it does get you to the question of, okay, you're now in this place where you have these two things tied at the hip. It's causing a lot of problems. You have cultures that are destructive that probably would have arisen even without the two hand in hand, like the increasing arms race and the addictiveness of our technology and phones. Um, so then, you know, then what's the next move? Is it purely cultural? Do you demand that you're going to try to get back to more of a free marketplace through, through what? Mm -hmm. 
it's it's not clear to me. Maybe you have some thoughts. Well, I guess the overriding question is, does technology, is there some sort of new technology, is there some new driver in society which forces us to change economic principles? Right. That's That's a harsh question and a hard question. I think the answer to that is no. I, I think that the principles we apply to subjective value and to value more generally and you know still apply. But I think we we yes have to look at these tech companies as a, a sort of a new animal, um, uh, something we haven't dealt with before. And, and as a result, I think we have to rethink um, how we approach them from a market perspective. I'm not sure that I figured out the answer to that. Um, but I think that the Rothbardian conception of harm in society, you know, whether that's trespass or aggression against a person's physical person or a theft of their physical property. In other words, this entire conception of harm, it, which, which Rothbard wrote about in his book, The Ethics of Liberty, is, is completely based in a, a physical world, right? Not in a digital space. And while I certainly agree that we can't define harms too broadly, in other words, what kind of harm ought to give rise to legal liability, a way to rein in some of these tech companies for what I consider actual real harms that they're creating in society, and how might we go about rectifying that but, you know, within some sort of libertarian worldview? I think it starts with uh, defining Rothbardian aggression a little more broadly and taking it into the digital world. Blasphemy. It, Blasphemy, perhaps, but when we read uh, Rothbard's Ethics of Liberty on the concept of defamation, for example, which Walter Block, professor at Loyola in New Orleans, has expanded upon, you know, the idea that you don't own other people's thoughts and opinions and feelings about you. And so if somebody utters a defamatory statement about you, um, you, you ought not to have any legal recourse to sue them civilly, for example. In, in a libertarian legal code, um, you can only sue people for injuries, actual physical injuries for the most part, against your own property. And what we're talking about in a defamation suit is not your own property. That's been sort of the plumb line, you know, hardcore libertarian view for a long time. Now, when you introduce defamation into the digital sphere of Twitter, uh, let's say uh, somebody on uh, Twitter says, uh, Jordan Peterson is a pedophile, and I can prove it. I have evidence of this or something like that. Well, let's just say that that's completely outrageous and completely untrue as a purely factual matter, okay? And let's just say hypothetically that as a result of this defamation, Jordan Peterson was to lose his job, his position. I don't know. I, teach, I, don't, I think he quit the University of Toronto. Um, lose his book publishing, lose his reputation, his family disowns him. You can't make any more money on the speaking circuit. You know, there, there's a real harm there. And both in the Rothbardian and even in the today's Walter Block conception of that, well, too bad for Jordan Peterson. He, he just has to live with it because even if this statement is false, um, he didn't own, he didn't have a, a, a right in, in any uh, libertarian sense of the word, either from homesteading or contractual right, to the future goodwill of all those people who bought his books and came to his lectures and employed him, and maybe even his own wife and kids. And it strikes me at, at, that at some point, we need to, to rethink that from sort of a common law perspective. In other words, I think common law ought to be very localized, and I think it ought to be very uh, temporally applicable. In other words, 
I've mentioned this in an article recently, stealing a man's horse a couple years ago, a couple hundred years ago, is different than stealing a man's horse today. Because a couple hundred years ago, he may have been in the desert, that may be his only transportation, and stealing his horse may have consigned him to a, a death by dehydration in the Old West Desert. Whereas today, you know, I'm sure there are people here in the Keys with horses. If you steal a guy's horse, you're probably not consigning him to death, right? So, uh, you know, local custom, local rule of law, local common law can evolve, local juries can evolve and find a remedy for that, okay, which would be different in Tombstone, Arizona a couple hundred years ago than Key West today. And I think we have to allow some degree of common law to operate uh, in, in the realm of reigning in tech companies, because what I don't want to see is a heavy-handed, top-down federal bureaucracy, which we know is, first of all, going to be captured by the very interests it attempts to regulate. And second of all, it's going to have a million unforeseen consequences uh, for good and bad. And I would argue that section the famous Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act has had consequences both good and bad. And so I, I don't want to see things done in a centralized or bureaucratic manner. I want to see them in a dispersed a localized manner. So in an imperfect world, that's that's my imperfect answer to how you uh, begin to approach this tech issue. As you're talking about the that and the the local kind of primacy of the local, it occurs to me that maybe the solution is there or if not in directly in the local at least in terms of in the alternative. So the solution isn't to break up Facebook or heavily regulate Facebook or Twitter. I, I think those are doomed to to fail as measures anyway for the reasons that you provided. Maybe it's alternative structures, alternative platforms. Maybe it's voting with your feet and getting out of those platforms and into others. Now, that's a very hard thing to do because Google is omnipresent. One of the things, one of the ideas I've floated, um, and maybe I should actually talk to a lawyer about this at some point, is that it actually should be illegal for the government to be using social media platforms that censor because they're putting out information and they're not putting it out in a medium where everybody can access it. They're putting it out in a medium that discriminates ideologically mm -hmm. or on other things. Um, certainly getting government out of the business of supporting in any way, shape, or form these platforms would be great. Mm -hmm. I don't know how realistic that is, or forcing their hand to do that in that sense that uh, I spoke about. But beyond that, creating these alternative structures, creating these alternative platforms, and then having strong cultures or groups of or clusters that start using these, so getting people to not use Facebook, but use some alternative is a very challenging problem. But you could see cultures arising that are strong enough such that there's actually a stigma in a certain group or culture to using that mm -hmm. the way there already is in the Amish to just, it's just not done. There are certain technologies you don't, you just don't touch. It's conceivable that there could be certain platforms or tech companies that you just don't interact with. And that with a high enough degree of intolerance, or I think my friend uh, Tim Verkula prefers the word intransigence, um, with a high enough level of that intransigence, you could push people into, or a certain section of people, into these other things. And that does deprive those companies of a certain amount of energy and power if you do that. 
maybe maybe there's some inkling of a solution there in the same way that you know that the United States is no longer the United States maybe you know maybe social media may someday not just be Facebook so build your own Facebook is what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> I, yes I'm saying build your own Facebook but I'm saying what's going to sustain that is going to have to be alternative cultures in which the idea of using Facebook is so intolerable that they can't right. even well, consider it. And, and you know, that happened to MySpace, not for any sort of ideologic reasons, but just people started to say MySpace is lame, right? And I thought, I, I felt like just a few years ago, that was starting to happen to Facebook. You know, younger people, especially 20-somethings, were opting out of it, and many of them never started with Facebook. They were joking about boomers using Facebook to post pictures of their grandchildren and all that. But I, it feels like that's faded a bit, that Facebook is still uh, the dominant, uh, you know, not text, but but photo social platform. I mean, I'm not an Instagram and, and person. And Insta, but yeah. Insta, of course, is owned by Facebook, so it's the same platform. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, and how do you keep other companies from eating those you know, those well, upstarts. Just because I'm starting to deviate a little bit maybe from <laughs> Rothbard and Block on tort doesn't mean I'm deviating from Rothbard on monopoly and antitrust. I think those are those are absurd uh, mechanisms for the kind of problems you face. And, and just as you said, I think any sort of regulatory structure that tries to come after Twitter, Facebook is just doomed to, to being, you know, uh, a, a nuclear bomb where it needs to be a precision strike in, in many cases. And so, but I really like your idea of a law prohibiting FedGov uh, from using platforms which discriminate. And and I think that's that's fantastic. If you're going to put out a, a federal government press release about COVID, for example, and you're going to do so via Twitter, well, some people are, are kicked off Twitter, right? And and so that that seems like an excellent idea. But, but more importantly, um, the thing to remember about companies like Twitter and Facebook, for example, are that as dominant as they seem today, I mean, you can go back and look at the uh, Fortune 500 list of biggest companies in America. Go back five years, go back 10 years, go back you know, 30 years. You had IBM and companies like that. And so it, it really does change. I mean, the market deals with this in large part. Uh, so I, they're not, yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. At the same time, I no longer see them as market. Their, their dynamics are well beyond the market. They're quasi-governmental. And so changing out of Facebook is almost like a regime change. Those things happen, but they're a lot harder than dethroning IBM. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I, I agree in part. Like you saw what happened to Parler, right? Mm -hmm. Parler, uh, for the listeners, was a kind of alternative to Twitter. They gained a lot of traction among uh, Trump supporters who were being kicked off Twitter and then they were, that platform was promptly kicked off Amazon, which hosted it, and also kicked out of the Apple Store, which I think is it's coming back, but in probably a captured way, where it's it's denatured or what, whatever that term is, um, uh, spade. <laughs> um, so you know, so so that idea of an upstart can come about in the context we have now of of these companies being quasi governmental. Um, and controlling the platform and the infrastructure, it's uh, it's trickier, well, let's and just it, say. And it can go a lot farther than social media and being able to spout your opinions on Twitter, right? It can go to banking. We're having companies like gun gun manufacturers being kicked out of using, you know, uh, Visa or MasterCard. 
We have certain big banks refusing to hold cash and just informing people, people who just do a lot of Bitcoin transactions, people who were maybe in certain industries, just getting a letter saying like, you know, we're going to give you a check for all of your funds. You're no longer allowed to bank with us. You see uh, APIs and payment gateways, uh, you know, PayPal being denied to some people. We're starting to hear ideas of no-fly lists, you know, ostensibly by private airlines. Now, you want to talk about a governmentality. I mean, airlines are so heavily regulated. They might as well be almost divisions of the Department of Transportation or the FAA or whatever they are. But, um, you know, so it's not just the ability to uh, talk about vaccines on Facebook or something. I mean, you're getting to into a, an area where people are really going to be constrained in their personal lives and how they can operate and make a living. And and this is something where I think we need to be rethinking our approach to this because it's it's scary times. Yeah, and I think this maybe brings us back around to the idea that we're going to have to, if we're going to find an out from that sort of a system, it's going to have to begin at the local and the cultural level uh, where we are, you know, we're opting out, we're voting with our feet, we are finding alternative structures, alternative platforms, alternative places to be, and and rebuilding perhaps from the ground up all of these pieces uh, in our own perhaps individual uh, city-states. I will amen to that. Well, thanks so much, Jeff, for coming on The Filter. I really appreciate you inaugurating this new format here. Yes, and I really wish you the best of luck with this fantastic project, this podcast project you have going in Florida and other things. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Filter with Matt Asher. You can find show notes at thefilter.org or follow user Matt Asher on the socials.